Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. It is March 17th, 2014, and that can only mean one thing. It's that time of the month. It's the time for film literature and the New World Order. And for those of you who were tuned in last month, you will uh, no doubt already know that this month we're talking about the movie Leap of Faith, the 1992 Hollywood flick starring, well, Deborah Winger and Liam Neeson with a completely unconvincing Texan accent, and Steve Martin in a surprisingly good role. In fact, uh, probably one of his best acting performances of his career. Um, And also a young and relatively unknown Philip Seymour Hoffman. And of course, this is a movie centering around the fake, phony faith healer Jonas Nightingale, who maybe turns out not to be phony at the end after all. Um, And we will be talking about this very interesting movie with our good friend Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com. Sibel, of course, needs no introduction to my regular listeners and to people who follow along with the BFP Roundtable, among other works that we collaborate on. So, Sibel, it's great to have you here today, and uh, thank you for recommending this film. It was, was, I I think, an earlier conversation we had in which you mentioned this film that brought it to mind and I did see it I think when I was 13 or 14 back when it first came out but uh, I haven't seen it in a very long time so I've rewatched it in preparation for this conversation and there's a lot of interesting things that I think are apropos to what we uh, talk about uh, generally and in fact what we were talking about in our last BFP roundtable but maybe you can start by just telling us a little bit about your uh, your experience with this film and, and why you like it so much. Uh, sure. Good to be back again with you, James, for your show. Uh, this movie, I have watched it at least four times, and it became and it is one of my most favorite films out there. I don't know if you know about it or not, but one of my bachelor degrees, I, I had a two bachelor degrees. One was on criminal justice. The other one was in um, criminal psychology. But what it was on psychology. And and this movie is and has been for me the, the, the best analogy out there, the best showcasing of the masses and their willingness. And I, and I want to emphasize willingness to be duped to be tricked to be falsely mesmerized and and the psychology of of masses when they face uh the the uh, the individuals or they are before the individuals who know how to manipulate the uh the weaknesses and and the general psyche of of people and 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 it's so applicable not you know uh, culturally speaking for here in the United States but it's applicable everywhere it's like one of those universal analogies it has become for me and that's that's the reason i have been back watching it again and again and again and and uh, and i have used it a lot as an example as a as an illustration as an analogy in uh, several um, you know different times of dif- during different periods since 2004 but uh, for different uh, cases for example when i was watching the crowd you know i don't have tv channels per se but even through YouTube and and computer, uh, watching the crowd when they were listening to um, 
to uh, Obama, the candidate at the time, the presidential candidate Obama. And 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 the, one of the first things that happened was like I was thinking of this film, of this movie, Lip of uh, Fate. So, uh, so that's just one example. But it, it, it has so many deep, deep uh, psychological uh, uh, significance that that is amazing. And it is a movie that is worth watching over and over again because it's one of those that if you're really tuned in and you're really watching, it, it gives you this ability, you know, People talk about how it is when we remove ourselves that we go and try to look at things from way up there by removing ourselves with certain level of objectivity, which is a difficult thing to do in life. You know, try to really by uh, force of your own will to remove yourself and look at, you know, down there to see what's happening. But watching this movie brings you very close to accomplishing that. And and, uh, so anyhow, that was a long answer as always. (laughs) Your answer, it is my favorite movies. And then I can uh, later maybe talk to you about the the, the psychological significance and really what it signifies, this, this movie for me, this film, in terms of where we are today and how it's applicable to a lot of things that we are seeing around us. Well, it certainly is. And of course, it is important to note, I think, off the bat here that this movie was largely based, shall we say, on the actual faith healers, such as Peter Popoff, who, of course, was exposed by James Randi as actually using the device that uh, that is used in this movie, the radio uh, device by which he receives information about the attendees at the, uh, at the revival meeting in his ear so that he can say them on stage and amaze everyone with all of this knowledge that uh, Jesus is apparently putting in to his brain. Um, and of course, it's all coming from his assistant backstage. And uh, so, so a lot of these techniques, etc., were exposed in the late 80s as uh, uh, these types of television evangelists um, basically playing on people's credulity. So this does have an actual real basis in, in reality. But as you say, I think it's applicable to many different types of situations. And Exactly as you say with the uh, the Obama um, hope and change campaign, bringing this movie to mind. I must admit, when uh, when thinking about back to especially the 2000, uh, 2007, 2008 campaign where people were fainting in the audience, etc. for for <laughs> Obama, or at least uh, that's what we're we're being told happened. Um, it, yeah, it does bring to mind those those types of uh, the, the kind of craziness that can descend on crowds in moments where they're swept up by their kind of fanaticism over these types of things. And I think, I think you're right. It does of course come back to the fundamental question of, of psychology. And, uh, and I, I think it's important to note that uh, the, the agency of this, of, of, of the, 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 the dupe here really belongs to the people who are duped. Um, I think the con man can only go so far and, he relies on the credulity, on the on the willingness to believe of the audience. It's it's the audience actually wanting this is, I think, the the key ingredient to this, at least in my reading. And I think it's gestured to in the movie. For example, when uh, Jonas is at the uh, the the diner and he's talking to um, his his would-be love interest's uh, brother, and he says, uh, never never underestimate the power of belief, boy. With it, I've seen a mute sing hallelujah, and I've seen an old man get out of his wheelchair and dance. When you've got it, you've got the power of every ocean and every star in your hand. Without it, you've got nothing. Everyone you meet is just another sinner, and everywhere you go is just another hell. So uh, I, I think that nicely gestures towards that idea that, again, it's, it's it comes down to belief and people's willingness to believe um, that I think makes people into targets for this type of con man. 
absolutely. Uh, we talked about that a little bit during our roundtable show, you and I and Yermo, about this willful ignorance. And this is, ex- you know, very, very uh, similar to that same concept. And that is, you know, uh, people, and this has been the case for so long, and maybe as long as we have had humanity or uh, since we started having organi- organized humanity and then organized religion, it's because it's it has been used by the kings, it has been used by the, by the uh, various religious uh, institutions, it has been used by the politicians, and it has always been used successfully. In fact, it has been the key uh, ingredient uh, in in controlling the masses. Without it, you won't have it. And without it, you will never have any any successful politician or, you know, so-called leaders, because that is the ingredients to tell people what it is they are really looking for, they want to hear. And even if they believe deep inside that probably what they are being told is not true, it is the it is the desire to believe. It's the willingness to believe. It's like I want to believe it. It's parallel. It's exactly the parallel to. It's exactly the same thing as the willingness to be ignorant. You know, people that you can show them. I mean, all sorts of facts, documented evidence, etc. But they just essentially refuse to believe. Because believing it, it makes things difficult for them. Believing it would force them to think further and to force them to either take action or to feel bad about not taking action about this thing called conscious. Well, it's the same thing. It's the opposite side of the willful ignorance is this willfully believing in things that deep inside they know it's not true. Deep inside, they may be listening to this politician that they know to be, let's say, real elite. Okay, uh, we have we have had so many of these people, you know, the, the so-called leaders, people who have never been in touch, you know, with the real problems of what really the masses are facing. You know, their 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 kids are going to the private schools and they are being tutored. They don't have to really worry about their health care and their insurance. And they live in these multi-million dollar mansions. But you get these guys, these ladies, they come before the crowd and they talk just like one of them. They say that they feel their pain. They say that they feel their hardship that these people are enduring, and they deliver it with passion. And even if the crowd, the masses know that this person is a total elite, has lived his or her life, his entire life as an you know elite, they want to believe that because it is delivered they want the way they want to hear. And even with the promises, you know, the people who have been duped over and over and over and over again, they can go back and listen and come out and say, I'm a believer again. You know, it, it is, the, again, the opposite concept of saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. When With the masses, we get to this, fool me three times, shame on me, fool me four times, shame on me, but I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to be shamed. But I'm going to keep doing what I end up being ashamed of. And that's exactly what we are seeing uh, with this. And, and as I said, it, it is with politics. It is with the uh, organized religion. 
throughout the history. It is with every successful dictator, you know, look, go and 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 read the lingo and, and also watch the body language of people like Hitler. You see that. They know how to activate those buttons. They know how to push those buttons. They know where those buttons are. And deep down, people themselves know, but they want to do it. It's similar, again, to going and watching a magician show. You know, they can spend people spend hundreds of dollars. You know, it's an entertainment. And for that two hours or one and a half hours when they're in Las Vegas and they are sh- watching this incredible, you know, show by a put, put forth by this magician, regardless of knowing that these are all about science and tricks and, and, and all these things, they want to believe, even if it's for those two hours, that yeah, that's true. And, and you only get to have maybe really scientific-minded people or some magicians themselves in the crowd who may be paying attention to see, huh, how is he executing this trick, okay? What is this magician utilizing? But you get 99.9% of the crowd, the audience there, they are there, they want to be tricked. That is the purpose for, their, for them showing up there. I want to go for two hours and I want to be tricked. I want you to trick me and I enjoy it, okay? And that's, again, a, a similar analogy. Well, I think you and I and probably most of the people listening to our conversation can understand this from the point of view of the audience because we, either we have been in that audience at different times of our lives believing in, in various hucksters that we've been fooled by or at the very least we've certainly seen our friends and family and, and others being duped by people like Obama or, or whoever, whatever huckster of the moment comes by. And uh, we understand that frustration, uh, I, I think, from, from that perspective. But what about from the perspective of the, the, the con man himself? And, of course, this film does fit, uh, center around uh, Jonas Nightingale as, as kind of the main, the main character of this and kind of the antihero of the story. And it is interesting to, to watch some of his justifications for what he's doing. Uh, for example, at a, uh, or a scene in the film where he's confronted by uh, Sheriff Will Braverman, played by the... Um, very unconvincing Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> I just can't get over how bad his American accent is. But um, <laughs> but uh, he's confronted by the the sheriff, and he makes some uh, statement to the effect of, "Well, people go to uh, to pay uh, uh, for a Broadway f- uh, show. They they go and pay sixty five dollars just to get in the door, and and maybe they end up enjoying the show. Maybe they don't. Maybe they'll go home hum- humming a tune at best. But uh, but it's it's not a lot to show for their money. Whereas I give them a, a real show show and it, it, it you can change their life and uh, and give them a different perspective on the world etc cetera, etc cetera. um it's a i mean as far as justifications for conning the crowd go it's it's not completely unconvincing i mean at the end of the day, if the people do really believe it, then maybe they manifest whatever it is they're believing. Maybe there's some sort of justification for this because yeah, it's all a trick, but if it happens in people's minds, then it's really happening. Correct. Well, in this movie, he happened to be the the, the uh, character. Steve Martin happened to be the top of the chain. Okay, he is the one, and he's the star. And and it was you know he got there with his own will and decision. And he said, okay, this is my talent. This is how I'm going to use it. And and I don't see any harm being inflicted. You know, they're the poor suckers there. They want to be fooled. And plus, I'm not really doing any harms. When we put this in real life context within real politics, it gets a little bit more complex than that because 
the the magicians, the preachers uh, in this case, the showmen themselves are not the ones who wanted to get there, you know, that as being the end of the line, the top of the chain. They have been selected. So you got to go and see, okay, what is the institution? Who are the institutions and people who select these people and put on this show and for what purpose? And again, you take this micro movie and then you apply it to a larger, uh, bigger context. And that's when you can start seeing, okay, how they are selected and how actually those above benefit from this. And unlike the case in this movie, which is again a small uh, example analogy of this, you do see the harm that is really inflicted on people in even their day-to-day lives. And here I gave that example before. You get really um, highly talented uh, orators like uh, Hitler who can come and really evoke that passion and channel that passion and channel that willingness to believe into doing some really evil deeds. And the same thing is true with, let's say, if we were to apply that to our circumstances, to our situations here with, with, the, with the establishment, the real establishment, selecting these entertaining, these effective candidates, these great uh, orators like, like Obama, and putting it in there for their purposes. And within these purposes, you don't see anything that says people will be better off There's no harm in the end of it. Get people believe in war. Get people believe in the fact that it's okay, you know, that we have some collateral damage. Thousands, tens of thousands of people that we, our money, our willingness to pick these people, our willingness to sustain and support these people are causing all the murders around the world. It's okay, okay? You shouldn't feel bad about it. You should feel good about it. It is for the good of the world. It's the, for the good of the United States. It's for the good of people of the United States. You, you, and they are back. Actually, right now I'm pointing my fingers. There is no camera here, but I always talk with my hands. So in this case, when you start applying it to the larger scale, how it's being practiced, how it's being used, yes, you do see that it is actually doing a lot of harm and actually no good. Uh, well, of course, it's a Hollywood movie. And in this case, you get to actually dislike and like, really like this character. And and you come out after watching the movie with this mixed emotions, as you said. Well, he's not really doing anything, really any harm. And what's wrong with giving hopes? Well, what's wrong with giving false hopes? Because false hope regardless that it's a you know it's hope it's false it's falsehood and what what happens when you give people the false belief what happens when you give people the false goals and objectives and the passion that is channeled falsely and and uh, so that's that's one of the things that maybe some people may overlook after watching this movie but it starts with falsehood all the horrible things actually starts with falsehood and to be able to say, well, I'm doing this and uh, really there's no harm in this. Actually, it's it's not really true. 
No, of course it isn't. And in fact, we can we we don't really have to speculate about this. Um, it, it, this is an actual established concept in the history of political philosophy, going back at least as far as Plato, who wrote about the noble lie, um, those those myths that need to be offered to a society, even though they're true, and often of a religious nature, but not necessarily so, that provide social harmony or advance the kind of agenda of the ruling elite. And that, of course, is something that's been picked up on and used um, from time to time by various political thinkers, perhaps most notably in our times by Leo Strauss, who, of course, was the, the founder of the, the, or the godfather of the neocon movement, um, which, of course, I mean, we all know what, what resulted from that. And uh, again, Leo Strauss wrote about the importance of the noble lie, the, these myths that need to be prop propagated in order to make society cohere. And, uh, and we all see exactly what that, what kind of carnage that wreaked in the neocon administration. So, um, so I think that, again, this, this is, a, is a very real thing that is uh, consciously used as, uh, as a type of manipulation of the populace over and over again. And I think that this movie does a good job of showing that to people in a way that will make them perhaps think about it. And I guess if, if the question were to be, how can people defend against this? I think the only way we can get towards that is for people to become conscious of this process, to become aware of the fact that real manipulators and charlatans are out there truly trying to play on people's, on, on people's credulity. And I think people's incredulity at that idea, the, oh, people don't actually go out with the active intention of lying and harming people. Maybe, maybe they, they, they play a few tricks. Maybe, maybe they're not 100% honest, but they're not really trying to harm people or, or cause, cause anything, you know, bad to happen. I, I think people's willingness to believe that is one of the ways that they get trapped in this. So, so uh, the, the possible bright spot of this is that movies like this can at least make people question whether they've been uh, too, too ecstatic in their embrace of some of these uh, politicians and others, charlatans that have come along to try to sell them a bag of uh, myths. Um, I don't know if I've ever actually experienced that with with this movie or with any any particular work of literature or fiction or film or whatever in particular, getting people to actually rethink uh, political ideas that they've had. But I, I know that you've been talking about this movie for a while and you've mentioned it in various interviews. Have you ever come across people who have who have taken up this movie and actually had any type of, uh, you know, moment of reflection about it? Um, n no, not really, because... Uh See, the, the whole thing is, and, and that's, that's the beauty of this, actually, the effect of this movie, as we talked about the fact that maybe it will make people more conscious of what, what is happening. Uh, I remember there was this incredible speech delivered, really strong, really passionate, which was uncharacteristic because he's not that great of an orator by Al Gore. I don't know if you remember that famous speech that he gave. And he stood there and it was about the, uh, you know, NSA spying and the AT&T. And it was during the Bush administration and the need for accountability, which was for, I would say, for, for a couple of days, I mean, I, 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 I felt like I was really falling for it. I was like, it was so genuine. And the way it was delivered, I mean, it was, and what was delivered. And, and then I actually, from that subconscious part of my mind, I just went back to this movie. And, and it made me pause. And I was like, is it possible? 
I mean, is it possible that it's all for show and he really didn't mean any of this? This was only for some partisan agenda because the election is going to come maybe about a year, a year and a half away. And it's just channeling that towards the next party, his parties. You know, you know he's going to be a very rich man, which he became a very much, much richer man, Al Gore. Uh, and could it be that? So even though I consider myself as one of those people who is usually aware and paying attention, you know, like those magicians themselves who go to watch a magician show and their their sole focus is try to see the little tricks, I'm that way most of the time. And even with that speech, I, I was almost taken. <laughs> and But then I thought about the movie, believe me or not. It just comes back. It's there. That's one of the advantages of watching something way too many times, and that was a good thing. But you're right about the, about the fact that even if it does that in terms of making people a little bit more aware, a little bit more conscious when they are coming across this. When I was in Iran during Shah regime, uh, there were so many of these religious uh, preachers, not only in grand scales, like in big mosques, but even in gatherings, the smaller gatherings, uh, they kept promoting the idea that, okay, well, this life is really short. There is another life that is much, much bigger because they were talking to a lot of people who were suffering economically, you know, in, in socially under monarchy, under Shah's regime. And, and the whole concept, the core concept revolved around the fact that this all this pain, all this suffering, all this torture, they are temporary. OK, it's kind of part of a test. We go through it and, and, and let's put up with it. Because our suffrage, the more we suffer, the more we are going to be rewarded in this other world that we are going to go. And and it eased up so many people's pain listening to that because it was like, well, okay, it's horrible. It sucks, really. It's killing me, the pain, but it's temporary. As long as I know that, I will put up, I will put up a little bit longer. Then I'm going to die and I'm going to be rewarded by this. It was, it was a way of pacification. You know, that's why they call it, you know, religion, the opium of society, you know, where we have Karl Marx talking about that. But but it was extremely effective. And sometimes I even wonder, you know, when, you know, we have that in Christian uh, religion too, you know, somebody slaps you, you give the other cheek, I don't know the exact expression, but is it the intention there? And saying, don't defend yourself, okay? Don't do anything, you just offer your other cheek, and that, to me, it, you know, it, it you can talk, you can think about it under the terms that okay, forgiveness is a good thing. We all know that, don't we? I mean, and we believe that. I believe that. I'm sure you believe that. But if we take that belief and if we apply it to the fact that we get abused, okay, uh, we get completely abused by the establishment, you know, and again, socially, health-wise, you know, with our children in school. And, and and we don't do anything about it. I mean, does that really fall into the category of forgiveness? Are we becoming, you know, this society that keeps forgiving these people who keep screwing us? 
you know, and then we forgive them and then we go and we elect them yeah. again. Well, I exactly mean, right. I mean, if Bush slaps us on the cheek, so we offer Obama our other one, I guess. <laughs> and, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, uh, I don't want to step on anyone's religious beliefs here. I, I certainly don't mean to do that. But I certainly do think that th- these teachings can be used and appropriated exactly for what you're talking about to placate people and to make them just accept and sort of roll over and take whatever the, the government is going to give them. And, uh, and that can be extremely insidious and extremely effective way of getting people to basically just back down. And it does raise the question of the, the kind of moral courage of the film for uh, uh, bring, bringing this, these topics up and actually showing some of these techniques, um, which back in 1992, perhaps it was still a little bit uh, uh, surprising to some people and still transgressive to actually show how these uh, charlatans operated. So kind of pulling back the curtain and showing people this was, I mean, maybe not the bravest thing that Hollywood has ever done, but but still, I mean, it still it was, was valuable in, in that sense. But of course, this being a Hollywood film, it had to end with actual miracles taking place as a result of this and, you know, the transformation or at least uh, the presumed transformation of Nightingale into a, an authentic, real uh, believer um, or, or so we're led to believe. Um, could this movie have ended in any other way? Did it, did it chicken out at, at the end or, or is there another way that this could have actually ended? I think it chickened out. And and again, that is, as you said, very predictable as far as uh, uh, Hollywood goes. Basically, it was the fact that we go and, and all those great things that actually you take away from this this film. But then, well, we just won't go uh, far enough. And that's exactly what we got. It's, not, it's uh, not even not going far enough. It's actually, it almost undermines the very message of the movie. Because ultimately, what does that mean? It means if you really believe, really, really believe, then the miracles really will happen. So you've just got to believe even harder. I mean, that's, that's almost the type of message that you get from, the, from that type of ending. Well, right. It is. But um, you've you got to look at the industry. You're looking at Hollywood. You're looking at actually how much this movie actually made in terms of the revenue. And think about all the people who would have been, again, excuse my language, pissed if if they would have gotten the the, the 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 real conclusion out of this because with this movie you could even have you know evangelicals people who are really involved with religion or you know really believing uh, believers in terms of muslims from other religion going in there or maybe refuse to going there because then it would be it would be challenging some really really sensitive core notions of, of our society, you know, not only here, but everywhere in the world. And again, that is not something that, that the Hollywood would ever want to do or go there. So the end of it was, I would say, with everything that was shown in terms of information given and, and this character, which was just, you know, incredibly, inc- incredibly portrayed by Steve Martin, it, 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 was, it, was, uh, it was a balancing act for them. To, to say to, to show all that and then say, but that doesn't mean that the real faith and the real belief, those things don't exist. And, and we want you, well, it's a feel-good thing in the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, the movie would never have been made if it had been some unrelentingly, you know, horrific film that ended in a sour note. I, I can understand just from the uh, just I mean, even just from the perspective of narrative itself, let alone the, uh, the Hollywood. Well, one, one, 
good example, James, would be even with the lottery. You know, I mean, you have these mega millions, 400, 500 million dollars. How many times do they show any of the people who didn't win? You know, and I mean, you always, when you bring up the internet, you see the face of the person who has won. Imagine if they put all the tens of millions of people every day that they actually didn't win, <laughs> you know? You, yeah, it, right. it, it is very similar. It's like, yeah. well, okay, I believe because that could be me. That miracle could happen to me. That luck could be mine. So, you know, the people who are losing tens or hundreds or some of them thousands of dollars and a lot of them socioeconomically speaking, they are they are not in any shape to say, well, that's the money to throw away. In fact, a lot of people who are spending all this money for the lottery, the gambling, they 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 happen to be from the people who are financially in, in dire situations. I mean, they take their paychecks because that miracle, it could be me. Sure. I mean, is it a lie? No, it's not. There's going to be one person. It could be that person. And they go and they spend all this money. And then, of course, you know, it pops up. This person who won, he was the one. He, you know, was one of the believers and he got rewarded. But there you don't see people talking about 98 million people and and, and, uh, hundreds or billions of dollars spent that, you know, didn't bring anything. It's what you don't see that's an important part of that equation. Are you familiar with Darren Brown? With who? Darren Brown. No. He's uh he's uh, uh like a I I don't know how to describe him um hypnotist kind of guy but not really but he he plays on people's psychology and, and things like this and, and he does television specials in the UK and uh one of the specials that he did was this uh I I can predict who's going to win the horse race and uh and so he was feeding um the the the, the winning horse to to a, uh, a select group of people that they follow throughout this t- television program and and every single time he predicts the winner they and he uh, i believe he gives them money to bet on the on the winner and they win and they win and they win and they go through this and with these however many people he selected um uh, they keep winning each each race and uh, and they get closer and closer towards the, uh, the the kind of goal of of uh which is all culminating at this one big race where uh, the, the 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 person who's who who ends up getting selected for that I think uh, has some inordinate amount of money that he can bet on this uh, on this race and does he believe you know Darren Brown can really predict who's going to win the horse race etc cetera, etc cetera. and then when you get to the end of it basically they reveal that of course what they did was they selected whatever five thousand people or or whatever and they sent every possible winner of every possible race to every each of these different people and then eventually the person who gets all of the winning horses is the one that they select for the uh, for the television program so what they're not showing you is the thousands and thousands of people who didn't who didn't win and uh, and that's how this you know amazing magic trick happens and i think that that's uh, that's a, a good reveal of this how this uh, works and the psychology behind it all right well uh, i think we'll we'll maybe wrap this conversation up there um let me thank you for bringing this movie back to my attention as i say i had seen it when i was quite younger but uh, but it was nice to rewatch this i mean even just as a movie i think it was a pretty good movie um and it was uh, as, as i say i think probably the best uh, performance of steve martin's career and uh, and it coheres pretty well. Um, I, I think that the the very ending is unsatisfying um, from a narrative perspective. I think they d- there's a lot of loose ends that they don't really wrap up. But but overall, it's a pretty good movie and um, definitely worth someone's time to think about in the context of what we're talking about today. So Sibel, thank you so much for bringing it back to our attention. Anytime. Excellent. 
All right, friends, there she goes, Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com, but hopefully you already knew that, and that will bring to a close another edition of Film Literature and the New World Order. But before we go, as always, let's just go through some of the feedback that we received about last month's conversation with Jack Blood talking about the novel This Is What We Do by Tom Hansen. And on that note, we got an email in from Ed that reads... Good show, James. Now I want to hear Jack's interview with Tom up next. I had given some thought to the requirements for a lone wolf vigilante. I believe the numbers have grown steadily in the U.S., probably since Desert Storm. Men with a desire for revenge on those who treat them as disposable. Angry men who don't like the local bank foreclosing on friends and family and the know-how to get revenge without consequences. The news would be local, of course, and investigation shallow. All but the lone wolf is subject to betrayal, and I can see no way of providing any organizational support to such. I do see how a novelist could encourage the practice and provide a lot of helpful advice to the right readers. At the same time, the planetary rise in consciousness is likely already moderating and discouraging such activities, so the odds of us reading about a nearly successful vigilante act would be slim indeed. All right, uh, thank you for that, Ed. I do agree with you. I think that that's probably the situation that uh, the revolution, of course, will not be televised and the uh, the talking heads and the corporate media and the foundation media would have no interest whatsoever in reporting on a genuine uh, uh, grassroots people's vigilante movement uprising. So I don't think we would ever see that. I think there would be a, a cover-up of that if it were ever to take place. So I, I think those are some some good points that you make there. And let's move along to Paul, who uh, writes in to say, Hi, James, just listened to your latest podcast with Jack Blood. Curiously, even though much of the discussion focused on the idea of a leaderless revolution against the banksters and the powers that be, not once did either of you mention the Occupy movement, which was exactly that. Occupy, of course, was ignored by the mainstream media for months, and then eventually squashed by police all over the country. How is it that you could have overlooked this topic on this show? All right. Thank you for the email, Paul. And uh, well, I can't really speak for Jack, but I I can just speak generally that these conversations, of course, do not come with any uh, pre-scripted viewpoints or or way to proceed with the conversation. They're just spontaneous conversations and those topics that are raised are raised and those that aren't aren't. And uh, I can't really speak to why this or that particular topic wasn't raised. So I I agree that certainly a, a look at Occupy and how that plays into this narrative of uh, this is what we do would be an interesting discussion to have. It's not the one that we did have. So as always, if there's anything in any of these discussions that you think is missing from the conversation, perhaps it would be more useful to actually write in with your own thoughts on that topic and how it applies to the work in question. And as always, I'm always happy to read the feedback that we receive here on air at the end of each episode of Film Literature in the New World Order so that you can add your two cents to the conversation. And on that note, if you have any two cents to add to this month's conversation talking about Leap of Faith. I'm, again, happy to receive them and happy to read them on air at the end of next month's conversation. And that brings us finally to your homework for next month. For those of you who are playing along and who do like to uh, view and listen to and read the works in advance, we are going to be talking next month about Citizen Kane. So, Get your uh, get your thinking caps on. Get your uh, videos ready and uh, and watch or rewatch Citizen Kane and get ready for a conversation on the third Monday of April. That would be April twenty first, where we'll be talking about Citizen Kane uh, with a special guest who shall remain a mystery for now. And on that note, this is James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. <laughs>